Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I have a fantastic guest with me today, Pam Pelligian. Pam is the Senior Vice President for Marketing and Communications for perhaps the biggest financial services organization that you may not have heard of. It is the Navy Federal Credit Union, which is, in fact, the world's largest credit union, supporting, of course, members of the armed services. And we're going to ask her to tell us a little bit more about that organization. But one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have Pam on the show is that the Navy Federal Credit Union is the six-time recipient of Forrester Research CX Index Best in Class Ranking. So this is an organization that is not only doing a wonderful thing by providing financial services for our service members, but also is clearly doing it at a very high level of CX quality. So we're going to want to ask her, of course, about the organization itself and what it is that they've been doing to achieve such success. I want to just mention one other thing about Pam that's really interesting, which is that she is a runner, an avid runner, and she's actually done more than 45 marathons in 38 states. She has a goal of running a marathon in all 50 states. I don't even have a goal of running one marathon in one state. So she's way ahead of me, that's for sure. But that's an amazing, amazing goal. So Pam, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And please uh, share anything else about yourself that you'd like to add by way of introduction to the, to the viewers. Thank you, Howard, for that introduction. And uh, I will tell you, yes, I do love running. It's part of my, I always call it cheap therapy. I also will say that I think it relates a lot to what I do in my day job in that CX really is a marathon. We all think it's going to be a sprint. It's like, oh, address this pain point, address this happiness, amplify the happy and kill the bad. That said, it is a journey. There's always, always something to be done. You're never finished. You're never finished. So I think that's why my personal life and my professional life align and that both of those are a almost impossible quest. I love that analogy. You know, it's so funny how you hear a term over and over and you stop thinking about its original meaning. Like when people talk about Amazon, they rarely think of the river. <laughs> and when people say sprints, I rarely think of running, you know, just because I'm so used to it in its sort of context of an agile sprint. But you're right. We talk about sprints and, and perhaps the marathon really is like the customer journey map. That's the marathon is made up of, of all the sprints. Although I suppose the metaphor falls apart because if you try to make your marathon a series of sprints, I'm guessing that it doesn't work too well. I don't know. <laughs> Unless you're a world-class runner. I've, I've always heard that they actually try to sprint the last 10K, which I don't know how that's even possible, but apparently that's true. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about the business itself before we get into the tactics that you're using to drive such a great level of, of customer experience. For those that aren't familiar, perhaps it's not, they're not in the Navy or their family's not in the Navy. Tell us a little bit about what the Navy Federal Credit Union is all about. As Howard said, we are the largest credit union in the world. We have 11 million members, and 1 million of those are new to us in the last year. So we've had a lot of growth. I always talk about two values have been very popular lately, but we've had values since our founding. We were founded around serving our members. Our tagline is our members of the mission, and we really make that our purpose. That is our North Star. And operationalizing that at scale for 11 million members is a challenge. We were founded around serving the Navy and Marines and then have expanded our charter for Army and Air Force as well as veterans and all of their family members. So probably close to uh, almost 30% of U.S. citizens are eligible in some way, shape, or form through a family member. Now their active duty or their veteran member has to join first. 
We have about 150 billion in assets. So size-wise, we're comparable to a, a mid-sized bank. But as Howard mentioned, you may not know about us if you weren't eligible for membership. And for us, membership is always job one because you have to join before you can do anything else. We're very much a community. We have 350 branches worldwide. Good chunk of those are international branches, which are on bases. And then here in the States, 184 of our branches are either on or near a military base. So very focused on serving our members. And we are full service. So whether I talk about the branches and where they're located physically, as you could imagine, 70% of our members use digital banking through the mobile app and online. So very digitally native group. Our members tend to be younger than the rest of the population, simply serving active duty who start often serving at 18. So that makes digital really important. It's digital first in terms of what we do and as we roll out the products and services. Yeah. Expand on that a little bit. You know, people throw that term around a lot, digital first. In some organizations, I feel like it's, it's just words, you know. What does that really mean operationally there when you're maybe launching a new product or thinking about a new marketing campaign or whatever, and you have the mantra digital first? Well, for us, we really try to make it, as I mentioned, we have 11 million members, and I talk about personalization at scale. The challenge with that is personalization at scale could be 11 million different little plans and different approaches, which operationally is not feasible. So what we try to do is make sure any product that we're rolling out, we are sending, allowing the member to apply digitally, but also sending them the information where if they need to come see somebody, they can get to a branch or they can call us on the call center 24-7. So we try to make sure that we're serving up the three channels, but we will also try to direct them to the channel that's most efficient. So when you think you've had a fraud incident on your card, or your card is missing, where the heck is it? You can go into the app, turn it off, freeze it for a while while you either find it, report it lost, et cetera. So we try to make that channel the first and foremost and the easiest, truthfully, because if you have your phone, you can access the bank. And you know, I'm curious about organizational readiness to change and adopt digital. Certainly, I know that many large organizations, leaders struggle to get the company to move at the speed that digital is moving at. And I, I always find the military to be an interesting dialectic of speed and, and technology, because on the one hand, some of our most sophisticated technology in the world comes from the military. The military has funded the creation of the microprocessor and digital imaging and, and so many things. And at the same time, I know it's an organization that very often is built on tradition and figuring out how to do something and systematizing things. When you think about bureaucracy, you know, you think about the military as one, if, you, if it was family feud and someone say, name a company that's an organization that's very bureaucratic, someone said the military, number one, you know, at least it might be. So I, I'm curious, that combination of being both very leading edge, but at the same time, culturally often kind of bureaucratic. Has that been your experience? And, and how does that mix combine when you're trying to drive change and, and digital transformation? Well, I think for us, you're exactly right. There's a lot of things in the military that are very structured, very precise. As you mentioned, technology, they're used to working on it, but with a, in a very big scale way. The same technology is not always what's available via your phone. So we have tried to balance that. And to this day, some of our members that have jobs at the Pentagon, et cetera, or when you're in basic training, you don't have access to your phone. You don't have access to digital banking. So we try to have to think about ways in the context of just making sure that we're always putting ourselves in their shoes. 
because we can't, for example, when you think about two-factor authentication where you're going to send somebody a code via their phone, they're like, great, well, then I can only do that at home at night because I work at the Pentagon and my phone's locked up, you know, or I don't have access to that now. So we try to always think about it in that the members first. I'm doing this podcast today from my office, and I have a big sign over my desk that just reminds me. It says, our members at the mission. It's like, think about it from that member's perspective. Can he or she get to what we're offering, and have we made it easy? Part of our principles align with the military in terms of that precision and that accuracy, but also that individual touch, because we know that's really the point of difference. So for us, our three pillars are know me, show me what's next, And then the third is do it for me. So anytime uh, we are looking at something, and I say something because it doesn't always have to be a product, sometimes it can be a service, we ask about how are we showing the member that we know them? How are we showing them what's next? Sometimes what's next when you think about a mortgage is figuring out what do you need to do next to get your application approved. It's not necessarily the next product. And then sometimes do it for me is as simple as, help me with an alert on my account. Or for this year coming out of pandemic, all the members that got stimulus checks first round, we went ahead second round and go ahead and sign them up for a notification on alerts to let them know when their money was arriving because it wasn't clear when exactly who was going to get paid. So we sent out an email saying, you got one last time, you may get one this time, so we've already pre-enrolled you in this alert. Very few of the members said, wait, I don't want the alert. Everybody was like, thank you, that's perfect. You know, under those three pillars, we try to look at it through their lens and then how are we helping them? Yeah, I love that model of know me, show me what's next and do it for me. It's simple. I mean, easy to remember. Look, I just remembered. And I love the fact that you have a sign on your wall that says members are our mission. I'm guessing you have methods to make sure that if I if I stopped someone in the hallway and I said, what are the three pillars of your customer experience? Would most of them say, know me, show me what's next, do it for me? And if so, then I got to say, I'm starting to get some clues as to why you're one of the Forrester CX leaders here, because that basic idea seems like something that I bet you if I stopped someone in the hall of, I don't know, I'll just pick on Citibank and said, what are the three pillars of customer experience at Citibank? I think you'd get like a humana, humana, I don't know. There wouldn't be that kind of crispness of, hey, we have these three key ideas. What do you do to onboard people to make sure that is something that is at the top of everybody's mind? Well, it starts with what we call the place map version of the strategy. We get the strategy on a single sheet of paper so that every employee doesn't always have a deck. And let's face it, a deck is not very memorable. (laughs) But we try to get the strategy on a page and then remind them of the guiding principles and the three pillars of CX, as you talked about. We also say that banking, and particularly at Navy Federal Credit Union, where we're serving a community of members, members who opted in to be part of our club, we owe it to them in terms of being member-driven and member-obsessed. So a service business requires that. If I was a CPG company and manufacturing a product that's the same for every single person I make it for, I think that's a different challenge than any kind of service brand, particularly banking. The tools we use for that is we do journey mapping with our members relative to the process, which could be acquiring a product. We also do it for things like reporting fraud. That for us is one of a, it's a big point of loyalty where depending on how we handle that with them or a dispute on their account. So both of those are things that we have put a high priority because we've shown that those have a direct link and correlation to our member satisfaction. So we do journey mapping for 
helping you onboard with a new product, onboard as a new member, as well as fix problems. And the two big problems would be fraud and a dispute on your account, a dispute which could be a debit or credit card dispute. Often when you talk to some of the bigger institutions, they've done lots of journey mapping on selling and less on servicing. And for us, we know that it's both. You may not buy a car except every four or five years or sometimes every decade for some of our members. That said, you're going to bank every day of your life, every day that you're buying something. So how do we make sure that we are showing up in a meaningful way at those moments? So the journey maps help us. And then the journey maps for us, we try to look at how we can amplify the good. What were the things that happened along the way? For the example, the alert notice notification I gave you, that made a lot of people go, great. They knew they were going to get paid, but they didn't know when. So us pre kind of figuring that out. Uh, we figure that out by what we do. We call it listen loudly. All of us spend some time in the call center listening to members and looking through social comments and hearing what we see comments about. And then how do we amplify the good and, if you will, kill the bad or at least address the bad. Sometimes the bad is just how long things take or confusion. We can clarify the confusion and try to speed up the ways that make it easier for them. We have also done personas that are built on our uh, segments. We have member segments. Interesting enough, we did a giant segmentation study in 2019. And that timing is important because as we all probably remember, 2019 was pre-pandemic. It's hard to think about pre-pandemic. When I say 2019, people are like, really? We didn't have a pandemic then? We didn't. And we had just finished a, a, a very robust segmentation study segmenting our members, but also using a lot of third-party data. And coming out of going into COVID, what we found is the segmentation was less valid. It was more about people's either, there was a bifurcation of the audience, people that were either just severely inconvenienced, staying home, saving money, eating out less, not doing any travel. And then on the other side were members that were severely and economically impacted. So Needless to say, we could have come across really tone deaf if we talked about use this time to save up your money and think about what you're doing next and plan your family's dream vacation. So then we sunset or really just kind of rested, if you will, our segmentation and looked back at some recession segmentation that we had done. But we pivoted pretty early. And I will say that's another secret to the CX thing is like listen loudly and often because it changes and it changes often. And particularly during the pandemic, things were changing often. So here we are a year and a half later, and we're just now going back to our segments. Yeah, I love that. Listen wildly, listen loudly, listen often. I think that sounds like another kind of rallying cry that personally I, I have observed for years, this is a key to those companies that are successful is that they really, they're extremely curious about understanding what's really going on with their customers all the time. So that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I love call center observation. I, I similarly find that even when you're not focused on the call center as a the thing you're trying to impact, what a great way to just be able to sit there and just listen to customers all day. And, and also that the people who work in the call centers can be just such valuable resources. You know, I think it's uh, one of the Malcolm Gladwell books where he talks about the idea that if you want to become an expert at something like a professional golfer or a a concert pianist, I think he says that there's that 10,000 hour mark. I think that's what it is, if I'm remembering correctly. You, know, you do something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert at it. And that's like five years of full-time work, right? And so to me, that says that if you've got people on your call center that have been there for more than five years talking to customers, 
eight hours a day, every single day, that they are absolute experts at understanding the mindset of your customers. And I'm often amazed how often that asset that many companies have, or it may not be a call center, maybe associates in a store or tellers in a bank or security personnel, you know, but whoever is engaged with your customers aren't always leveraged when we're trying to understand and, and listen wildly, as you say, and understand what the customers really need and, and how they're really thinking. And for us here, those member service reps, they are the front line and we treat them kind of like military front line, protect them, listen to them. They know it. And that's both in our branch and call centers. They hear from members all the time. I'm also, I have tremendous respect for them because I feel like it's like playing Jeopardy when I listen to calls. One person has something simple and the next one has something like, I don't even know the answer. <laughs> and we measure their satisfaction on how they're doing in terms of meeting those needs. No doubt that's key as well. When, when your people are happy, then of course, that's going to be felt by the customers that they're interacting with. It has to be for services because they can't actually give good member service if they don't feel happy and fulfilled at what they're doing. So that's job one. Yeah, so true. And to hear you say it, it's almost like, well, well, obviously, you know, and yet you could look at, man, I'm sure there's many people listening thinking, yeah, obviously, but we don't really do that at my company, you know, as, as obvious though it may be. So again, you know, uh, we're always looking here on the show for like, what are the clues from those companies that are most successful? Sometimes when you talk to people from the companies that are so successful, the things they're doing to make them successful, they almost seem obvious to them. But in fact, many companies are not doing them. And so that's the value of putting a spotlight on it. You mentioned the insight that you got from your segmentation around the fact that, you know, you had some members who weren't doing well financially and you would be tone deaf to communicate in a way that suggested now would be a good time to save. You mentioned to me in a, a previous conversation we had about another thing you learned from the segmentation about birthdays. And I'd love you to share that story as well, because it seems like it's in the same vein. And it, it, I really remembered it. It was really interesting. Howard asked me about surprises from our segmentation. And I will tell you, I was very proud of my team that had put together the segmentation. I was happy with the results we were getting from response. So we rolled it out. And part of the personalization was, you know, thinking about these moments of joy. Well, when you step back, moments of joy for a lot of people is your birthday. Happy birthday. It's your day. Today's your day. So we decided that we were going to take on sending member birthday emails. So happy birthday, a little confetti in the email, a little cake with a candle, varies from year to year, the creative. That said, we had a couple of members who basically replied back and said, you know, I know that you know it's my birthday, but please don't send me any birthday notifications. And we were thinking, this is really interesting. Like, why? Who doesn't like their birthday? Or is it a nervousness about not wanting to acknowledge aging? Is it we were trying to think through all these different things? Then what we did is we took the list of everybody that had opted out of a birthday notice, because you can opt out of anything, obviously, and profiled them. And we found that they fell in terms of our active techies uh, segment, they were most likely to be in that active techies who had very high privacy concerns. So interesting enough, we took all of them out of the birthday mailing. So now they don't hear happy birthday. Everybody else in every other segment does. And guess what? We got no more ask for taking out of the birthday list. And as we talked to some of those members, what we found out is like, I know that you know it's my birthday, but don't remind me that that date is out there. I trust you. I have a relationship with you. Often some of our members have multiple decades relationship with us. And they, they remember that we gave them their first credit card, their first car, their first home, helped them with a VA loan, et cetera. Don't remind me that you know it's my birthday. So we no longer say happy birthday to those folks. Just to those people, though. 
just to those people. And one thing I picked up in hearing you retell the story that I didn't realize last time is it sounds like because there are these techie people with privacy concerns, this may be people realizing that, well, email is not a secure form of communication, of course. And so if you send a happy birthday message, you're essentially revealing a piece of personally identifiable information by correlating the nature of the message with the date of the email. And we wouldn't normally think of it that way, but in fact, that's really what it is. And of course, if people are worried about identity theft, now someone can listen to that email. And I, I never thought about that, about birthday messages until, until your story, but it's a darn good point. They're not a happy message for everybody. I love the fact that you said that, you know, you got a few people who complained about it and you thought, well, isn't this interesting? And I think that's another one of those things where I think that's an indicator of a mindset that's really serving you guys. And it's part of the sort of thing I believe that leads you to be so successful because, you know, a lot of other companies either wouldn't notice it or they would roll their eyes. Oh, can you believe some people are so grouchy? Some people will complain about anything. These people are complaining about a birthday message, you know, and they wouldn't be find it interesting. They wouldn't find it something that would spark their curiosity. It would just be something they kind of shrug away, but you see it as an indicator of something that deserves further analysis and research. And I think that, you know, that aggressive listening, as you talked about, wild listening, where you say, what does this mean? I think that's, that's a key. I'm always looking for clues of success. When I talk to someone who's successful, I'm going, now, what is it they're doing? What is the mindset that drives their success? And I'm hearing those kinds of clues in some of the stories you're telling. And you have to be willing to be wrong. My hypothesis when we started the member list, I'm like, these are people that are aging and don't be, want to be reminded they're aging. But when we looked at the birthdays, nope, that's not it. Because they're young, they're medium, they're old, so it's not age. So I'm wrong. So what is it? What do they have in common? And that's when we ran it through the segments. And we're like, oh, look, 80% of them were in one segment and 20% were in another segment. That was shocking. So interesting. Well, I want to dive in a little bit more about journey mapping. It sounds like the journey maps that you do are a key part of your ability to really craft a fantastic customer experience. A lot of people do journey maps, and that can mean very different things. Some journey maps are like stories. Some are like very, very detailed Visio flow diagrams. And the ways in which the people create, some people create journey maps through extensive customer research. Others just get the right people in a conference room and have them whiteboard for a day and say, that's our journey map. So can you tell us a little bit more about, because you're obviously, again, we're looking for clues of success here. There are many ways to do it, but however you're doing it is really working. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is your process and methodology for approaching the creation of journey maps and kind of what do they look like when they're, when they're done? Well, the answer is it varies because I will tell you, we probably had a preconceived notion from our member service reps and from operationally, like we know how this works. So we'll just do them. It's like, no, no, no. If the member's missing, it's not a journey map. That's a process map. So first and foremost, it has to be based on real member feedback. And I say real member because we make sure that we're not just doing it with our employees who truthfully know too much. Their representation in a process is not really going to represent how a true member would would. So first and foremost, it has to be with members that are not employees. So we start there. And then we try to, and I say try because, you know, that's one of our big challenges with 11 million members. How do you do this at scale? I can't do 11 million journey maps. So we try to do them by persona and then also by segment. That for us has been the key to being able to scale it. Because otherwise, I've got an experience that really might help the UX team when they're designing a function. 
but it's hard to scale it unless I've done multiple maps against the various personas. And then sometimes you will discover similar joy points as well as similar pain points, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes what's really important to one member, another doesn't care about or puts much lower down the list. We've done a lot of work too on value and how members define value. And as you might imagine, that also varies. Some people value is all about price and quality. How low is the rate or for savings products, how high is the rate and what do I get in exchange? For other members, part of the value is, was it easy? How long did it take me? Did I feel appreciated? It's more about some of the softer metrics, which are about caring and empathy. And those are harder to show. And sometimes they're harder to teach, which is part of why, once again, we try to ground everybody in that member's orientation, because you have to be able to feel for them and empathize with their particular situations. One of our other secret sauce messages for us, knowing who we serve, we put a real priority on hiring veterans as well as military spouses. Veterans serve so they know. Military spouses know because they lived in those households, are still in those households. I've also been in branches where I see somebody walk in and ask those very questions. Is there anybody here who served? Is there anybody here who grew up in a military household? And being able to point to someone and say, he or she has been there is big. It really does make a difference. That's profound. And what you're saying about empathy and the emotional journey is something that I also have often seen in other places that the best journey maps are a journey, as you say, of course, for the customer, not just your internal process for sure, but also a journey, not just of activity, but of emotion. And how does the customer feel as they move through this process? And I think that's an idea that I don't often see being implemented. And I, and I hear that in what you're describing. And I think that's a point I would really want to want to spotlight. And, and, you know, it's funny because I sometimes hear about certain industries and financial services, an example of one, you know, that they don't seem like they'd be that emotional. You know, the funny thing is people think that, you know, a Coca-Cola commercial being all emotional makes sense, but they think that banking is, you know, a fairly sort of cut and dried type thing. And Yet myself, having done a lot of customer research with people about their finances and banking and investments and insurance, I can't tell you how many often people break down and cry in those types of research sessions because money can be extraordinarily emotional. And that's what the question I was going to ask you. How do you feel about your money? Is it important to you? Does it matter? Do you want to know that you're in control of it? Do you want to know how much you have? Do you want to know how much you need to make a decision? Do you want to know what you can afford? Yes, is the answer to all of that. So it is very personal. It is very important. We've talked about part of our brand personality does include some humor. And we're very careful on that guardrail because we cannot look like money isn't funny if you don't have any. And money isn't funny, too, if you're trying to um, buy a house. You're very serious about your money. That said, when you think about what makes somebody approachable, often it's their humor. It's, it, it is a key that allows you to know that you can approach somebody. So we work really hard on getting the humor right in our communications. So you want it to be a friend, an advocate, an advisor, but not the preacher or your parent. You know, so some of our humor, we, we affectionately call it dad humor because that's somebody that you can relate to and somebody that is very approachable. That is a big part of the emotional equity. 
in the brand. As a father of five kids, I'm so happy to finally hear somebody say something good about dad humor because I'm often accused of it. And I got to say, it's usually not a compliment. So (laughs) (laughs) that's great. So we've covered a lot of ground here. We've talked about, I think, a number of really key things that feel to me like seeds of your success. Your personas and segmentation and the power of that. Your real curiosity about listening to customers your clarity around your mission of serving customer, of serving your members and this idea of like really a three key pillars of the customer experiences that you deliver and uh, the way that you use journey maps and not just mapping the journey, but making sure the customer's in it and that there's real empathy and emotion in it. So I think those are all real power tips that I've already heard in, in listening to you describe it. We have just a couple minutes left. And let me ask, with those having been at least touched on, of course, we could talk for hours about these topics, but Are there any other things that we haven't touched on that you would say are some of the keys to what's driven your massive success as measured by Forrester and no doubt by your members as well at driving great customer experience? Do what's right for the member. Do what's right for your employees first and your team members, and then do what's right for your member. As we've said too, employees that have to make decisions on behalf of our members, if they're doing what's right for maybe Federal Credit Union for the team that they're part of and for the member, they can't make a wrong decision. You know, that's an interesting point and makes total sense. And I certainly empathize with it. And I know that there are probably many people listening that say, oh man, I wish I could do that. Because the truth is, you know, when we say do what's right for the customer, when it's also in our interest as a business, then that's easy to do. But when we really need that notion of do what's right for the customer, and I think it's what you mean, but of course, correct me if I'm misstating, is that when it's maybe not in our financial interest, when it costs us extra money, when it's not necessarily guaranteed to mean more money back for us, when it doesn't necessarily have financial return on investment, we should still do what's right for the customer. And I think that many people are in many organizations that they might say something like that, but they know that when push comes to shove, that that's not what their organization wants them to do. Their organization wants to do what they perceive is right for the investor, for the dividend, not for the market, not for the customer. And if you're not there now, I guess I would ask, what advice would you give to somebody who's sitting there thinking, how do I get my organization to see things that way? Because really, they don't. Well, that too is a journey. And I will tell you, we are gifted because we're a credit union. So we are a nonprofit. And our members are the owners, and we give back the dividends in the forms of rates and services. So that helps us. You know, we don't have investors to answer to quarterly. So that does give us a level up that some other companies don't have. I also will be honest with you. I have been here four and a half years. I knew Navy Federal. I worked at an advertising agency before, and Navy Federal was one of my accounts. And I got to know them and I fell in love with their culture. But that said, to your very point about how do you teach it, shortly after I got here, the government did a shutdown and DOD employees weren't going to get paid. When that happened before, I wasn't before I was here, but I knew that Navy Federal advanced their pay. So I spent my time the night before as the new marketing director making a rationale on why we should do the same thing again. This was going to be particularly, it was going to impact the Coast Guard. They were still going to deploy people, and they weren't going to get paid. Coast Guard is the smallest branch of service. I prepared for somebody to say, do we really have to do it? You know, They're not really DOD. They're part of Homeland Security. Do we really have to do it? 
So I spent my time the night before going to management council the next morning, prepping my argument and rationale for why we needed to do the same thing and make sure that they got paid, even though the government wasn't going to be able to pay them. I went to the meeting with my 18 peers, and as soon as it was discussed that this was going to happen and these are the members that would be impacted, said, let's, you know, discuss this. And I started my rationale. Everybody's like, well, yes, we're going to pay them. The only discussion is how. And for me, that was a big course correction. It told me that everybody got it. They knew right away the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, we're prepaying them out of our money until they get their money and get paid. That does cost us. And we didn't know exactly how long the government is going to be shut down. But it just reminded me that I I was so happy as the marketing director. You're not the one that's selling the Kool-Aid. Everybody else has already bought on how important that is. And I clearly should have spent my time thinking about how we were going to do it, because that's what my peers did, versus making sure that we were going to do it. Well, I think that is a great point to end on, because when you have a culture where management is all fully aligned and the organization is really fully aligned around doing what's right for the customer, that's perhaps the most powerful foundation, I think, for the more tactical results that get delivered when you deliver a great customer experience. It can be felt in every screen, you know, in every email and in, in every policy, all this detailed stuff like is in a journey map. But it comes from that kind of core energy of saying, you know, this is really what we're all about. And uh, so I do think that part of CX really stems from culture. And when you're in an organization where that's not the culture, uh, as you say, it can be quite a journey. But, uh, but anyway, I think that we'll add that to the list of, of key clues of why Navy Federal Credit Union has been so successful in, in CX. So thank you, Pam, so much. This has been fantastic. Is there anything in closing you want to say, any final thoughts you want to share or, or any place you want to send people or anything you want to, you want to promote? Well, feel free to follow me on Twitter, PG Polygian. Feel free to follow Navy Federal and follow our journey. It is a journey. It's not always perfect. It's hard to make it perfect for everybody, but that's our goal. And I applaud everybody else along this journey because it is like the marathon. It's never done. Mm, Indeed, indeed. Well, with that profound thought, Pam, let me thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really, really interesting and insightful. Everybody listening, join me in thanking Pam and let me thank you as well for uh, subscribing and for listening and watching us here on the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Until next time, keep transforming.